Legal Monday on The Viewpoint. Sherry, good evening. Thank you so much for joining us on SAFM. We welcome you and your expertise in the matter. Good evening, Sangir. So lovely to be with you and your listeners this evening. For those who want to know, Sherry Breslow is the director practicing in the Family Law Department at, how do I pronounce that first name? Worthy? It's Fairbridges Wertheim Becker, Sangir. So it's a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> Fairbridges Wertheim Becker attorneys. Thank you so much for That's correcting it. that. Yes. Let's talk harassment. I mean, I imagine this is something that happens in many instances. Those who are harassed might not even know, but in the strict sense, in the definition of the word, it would quite easily qualify as harassment if the person knew. So educate us more broadly on what that is. Yeah, Sangir, so, so we, we're quite fortunate in, in our law that we've actually got two pieces of legislation that protect us from harassment or abuse. The one being the Domestic Violence Act, which protects people that are in a domestic relationship. And we can talk more about exactly what defined what is defined as a domestic relationship and then there's the uh, protection from harassment act which also protects people from any forms of harassment be it verbal mm. written physical visual there are so many different definitions of harassment and domestic violence um, but uh, yeah it's quite broad and quite all-encompassing and we've actually had some amendments to our law which came into operation in April this year which even further, extended the definition of harassment and abuse so it's it's quite uh, there, there are quite a number of subheadings to it um, and I can go through them briefly with you as I said there's physical abuse sexual abuse emotional verbal and psychological abuse economic abuse intimidation harassment stalking damage to property um, and and the list goes on but but those are sort of your general uh, headings that you'd that fall under no thank you for saying that and 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 I'm glad we are sort of moving generally in the more domestic setup of course it does traverse into the employment space and I think on another day we'll yes. have a more employment centric focus on the aspects of harassment but I think what's happening yes. in our social spaces is really where this is a concern I mean if you look at the incidence rate in South Africa from just sexual abuse and everything that leads up to that, for instance, among some of the lesser known ways and forms of abuse. I mean, you mentioned economic abuse. So perhaps just go through yes. those stated forms of harassment, stroke abuse, so that we yeah, can get so our understanding. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's unfortunately very, very significant in our country. Um, and, you know, the, the number of inquiries that I have are certainly escalating. Um, you know, as time goes by. So economic abuse really um, is defined as sort of an, an unreasonable deprivation of economic or financial resources, which you are entitled to under law. So say, for example, um, you've got, and I'm obviously generalizing greatly here, but say you've got a stay-at-home mom who looks after kids mm. and she's very reliant on her husband. You know, he's the main breadwinner. And say they have a fight and he says to her, well, that's it. You know, I'm cutting off the purse strings. And, you know, obviously in extreme circumstances, for example, she may then not have access to funds to purchase food for herself, for her children, to put a roof over her head. That really is the definition or the sort of very basic definition of economic abuse. It's depriving someone of the financial means that they need in order to support themselves even on a very basic level. 
Does it happen the other way around? I mean, whilst that is more probably, I don't know, probably more frequent, does it happen the mm. other way around? Or have you experiences where it Absolutely. has been the other way around? And can you give us an example, just so that we can broaden our understanding of the issues at play? You mean by, by saying the other way around, you're talking about, for example, a, a female depriving Correct. a male, Correct. for example. Yes. 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 You know, in our, in our um, society, um, you have all sorts of relationships and all sorts of arrangements between parties. You have same-sex relationships. Um, you have relationships where the dad is a stay-at-home dad and the mom goes out to work. So, as I said, I was very much generalizing there. But it's essentially where um, parties have a duty of support between each other and then for whatever reason, um, and as a form of abuse, the one party then stops um, financially supporting their partner or their spouse or the person that is reliant on them. It could also be between a parent and a child, for example. So it really extends to all the different forms of domestic relationships which which there are and which are defined in the Act. I would imagine the word protection order is not a word that many are unfamiliar with. Perhaps how to secure one, the process involved in getting there might be the challenge. So if anybody is listening to this conversation, I am with Ms. Sherry Breslow, Director Practicing in the Family Law Department at Fairbridges, Wartime and Becker Attorneys. Let's have a conversation in terms of just ensuring our social spaces reflect who we are and our aspirations, safe fun, enjoyable, where cordial relations can be maintained, if not at least brokered for the better. Let's talk about the protection order. I mean, at the point at which one feels abused and or harassed, what now are the practical steps one can take to protect one's physical integrity or psychological integrity? And to the extent that it is not working, if I say, Sherry, stop it, or Sherry, this is what I need Mm. you to do, how then do I begin to enforce what would be my right? Yes. So, Sangeso, the process, thankfully, is a relatively straightforward one. One would approach the magistrate's court, which is closest to where generally where you live or where you work. And in every magistrate's court, there is a domestic violence court and a harassment court. So, depending on whether you're wanting to apply for a domestic violence order or protection order, you would then go to the clerk of that court. There are pro forma template forms which you then are required to complete and you sign them before a commission of oaths in the court. It's usually the domestic violence clerk who assists you with that. And they actually sit there and do assist you in completing the forms because the process is such that they try and make it as user-friendly for the people coming to court. You don't necessarily have to come with an attorney. Um, Your application form is then completed, and it gets sent to the magistrate who's dealing with those types of matters on that particular day. And usually what they will do is they will ask you to then come back to court a little bit later that day or perhaps the day after. And the magistrate will then make a decision as to whether, um, based on what is in your application, they should grant what we call an interim protection order or interim harassment order. Um, That interim order is then served on the respondent or the person against whom you wish to obtain a a protection or harassment order by a member of SAPS, a member of the police. Mm -hmm. Um, And once it's served on the person by the police... Sorry, can I just slow you down there, please? Yes, sure. I've left the court. I've got this document 
now that yes. has been populated, this pro forma document that has been populated with the assistant with assistance of the representative yes. at the magistrate court. How now yes. do I have it served? I think this is where perhaps a lot can go wrong, the service of the document. So service, you have to literally take it to the police station closest to where the respondent is living. So you would take it to the police, you would give it to the station commander. They then have to ensure, and the police generally take these orders fairly seriously, in my experience, mm. they then have to track the person down, um, which is sometimes easy, sometimes not so easy, but generally they do manage to get it right. Mm. And they then personally have to hand the, the document to the to the relevant party. Mm. So they can't just go and stick it in the person's post box or stick it on the door. They have to physically hand it to the person and explain to them what the interim protection order actually means because it's quite a it's quite a serious document in the sense that if that person then contravenes the terms of that interim order in any way in other words if they then go and still commit mm. an act of domestic violence against you you are then entitled to phone the police and they are then authorized by virtue of the terms of that interim protection order to actually go and arrest that person. Um, so it's quite a it's quite a significant document and unfortunately it is also subject to abuse in, a, in the sense that Important you can point. go and apply yeah. for that document without the other person being present. So you can imagine if, if, if we imagine a, the flip side of the situation where say I'm a I'm 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 in a relationship with someone and they break up with me, mm. and I'm really really upset about it, and I want to now get up to some mischief. I could potentially go and apply for protection order against that person, make up a story, and the court then goes and and makes an interim order without that person even having the opportunity of being heard. Sure. So that's why I say these orders are significant. The courts don't grant them unless they're fairly con confident that the person has grounds for one. And the important thing to know is that once the interim order is granted, you still have to go back to court on what we call the return day, mm -hmm. which is like a follow-up day where mm -hmm. both parties come to court so that they can both have their say before a final protection and order is granted. And that in the, in the instance of mischief, or even in just a genuine matter would be the first opportunity the respondent to that interim order will have a, a chance to rebut, if you will, whatever is contained in that interim protection order. Well, not, not necessarily, because the nice thing that, that one can do, if, for example, there is an element of mischief, is you can, and what we call, anticipate the return day. Mm -hmm. So say I go to court today, and my next court date for my final order is in two months' time. Mm. I, as the respondent, can approach the court on 24 hours' notice and say, hang on, something very wrong is mm -hmm. going on here. This person has lied under oath, whatever the case may be. And I can bring that date forward. And provided I've got enough evidence to substantiate me bringing that court day forward for whatever reason, the court will at least hit, listen to what I've got sure. to say. Sure. So, so one does have that opportunity. Let, let's talk about the practicalities, say, of distance. If this abuse is not necessarily physical, but, I mean, yes. for instance, there's cyber abuse these days and people can be, say, yes. I'm here in Johannesburg and somebody's in East London and they are yes. hurling all forms of abuse because they've got my number, they've got my email address, they're calling me at work, yes. doing all sorts of things just to make me think of them and I'm always going to be upset at that instance. How can I enforce my rights in that sense? 
In, in the other same words, how way, can I get a protection order in that way? Yeah, in, in the same way, Sangeso, because you can go to the domestic violence court that's closest to where you are as the applicant. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's then going to have to travel a bit to the nearest police station closest to where the respondent may be. So say I'm living in Johannesburg, but the person who's committing the crime or, or you know, committing the mischief is living in uh, Cape Town. Um, it'll be sent to the relevant party in Cape Town to serve on, on the person. So it may just take a little bit longer, but there's still ways of, of dealing with it. Would I, as the applicant for this order, be the one who dispatches it to the police station in Cape Town, or will the court do that on my behalf? So you can you can ask the court to do it, but in my experience, relying on them to do these things sometimes can take a little bit too much time. Mm. So if it's at all possible and if you've got the resources to do it, it makes much more sense to actually arrange it yourself, whether it's by courier, whether it's by post, you know, however you want to try and do it. Um, but if you are not able to and you don't have the means, the, the, the courts themselves will transmit the document to the relevant police station. The conversation does continue. It's 2151. We're talking all things harassment, protection orders, mischief. Have you been subject to any of these things? Have you been in a position to enforce your rights? Has the law failed you, do you feel, at any point where you felt sufficiently violated, you were wanted, you wanted to use the institutions of state to protect your dignity, and you felt underrepresented, you felt as though you did not get the kind of protection you wanted, and the abuse in the result continues or continued, Please share your thoughts with us. 86 2032 We are also taking voice notes. You know the number. After the break, I'm reading the first two texts. Legal Monday on The Viewpoint with Songhez Omabegde. What is our role as the society, community, neighbours when your neighbour is experiencing domestic violence but when we call the police, the woman forgives the guy every time? My neighbor was being beaten by her spouse throughout her pregnancy, but every time we would intervene, she would forgive him. I don't imagine you are hearing something like this for the first time there, Sherry, are you? No, unfortunately not. And what what should happen? Who should do what? Well, you know, it's very difficult because you cannot... You cannot, I mean, the the best that a person like that could do is to report the incident to the police um, and they can investigate. You can also report it to a social worker, but unless the person who's experiencing the abuse um, is actually willing to come forward and and make an application or lay a charge, um, one's hands are tied. Good evening. I was in an abusive marriage for more than 20 years. The court and magistrate were on my side. I got a life protection order. That's interesting. I didn't know the protection order could span for as long as one lived. But can you just perhaps, and I know you may, you may not be qualified for this statement, and I'm just triggered by this comment here, Sherry. What causes people to sustain relationships that are clearly abusive? I don't know what a marriage is like. I don't know what a 20-year marriage is like. I don't know what a marriage of 20 years that is full of abuse is like. Mm-hmm. What sustains that? 
Look, you know, as you say, I'm I'm not uh, unfortunately not a psychologist, fortunately or not, or unfortunately, but in my experience, um, people who remain in abusive relationships often are conditioned. So it's sometimes a gradual, it's a gradual process, I guess, or where you know the marriage begins and things are things are good, and then life takes over and things just progressively become worse. And, you know, 10 years down the line, it's not so easy to walk away when there's two young kids involved and your lives are entangled. And and so, unfortunately, um, people do stay, you know, and they stay too long in my experience a lot of the time. And there are a lot of brave people out there who do, you know, after 20 or 25 years of marriage mm. or, or just being in any kind of abusive relationship. They have the, they have the bravery to take a stand and stand up. Um, but it's hard and it's hard for people who, you know, as I say, who have been conditioned and who don't necessarily um, have the ability, whether it's the emotional ability, sometimes the financial ability to just get up and walk away. It's not so easy when you're completely reliant on someone just to sort of pack your bags, pack up the kids and, and move. So I think there are many, many reasons why people stay. Um, and it's a very interesting topic. And, um, yeah, you know, it's it's unfortunately something that I have seen on, on many, many occasions. How do we protect children in setups where the parents are clearly just not fit for each other? And the children, minor children, obviously in this case, just are not in a position to effect any decisive decision about that circumstance. I would imagine this becomes especially tricky and sensitive. It does. It does. It definitely does. And, and you know, one of the things that the the, the new or the amendments that do the Domestic Violence Act um, bring about is also a, a much more of an emphasis on protecting the rights of children that are subject to domestic abuse. So as a third party, uh, you can now approach the court if you become aware of the fact that a child is being subjected to any kind of domestic abuse or abuse of any sort for that matter. I mean, if you're a professional person who becomes aware of it, you're in fact obligated in law mm. to report it, whether you are a medical professional, whether you're a psychologist. Um, so there are very many mechanisms in our law which can thankfully protect children, whether it's going to report the abuse to your local um, social welfare organization. You know, every every magistrate's court also has a children's court, mm. um, which, uh, you know, one can also approach if one becomes aware that there is a child who is in need of care and protection. So there are various avenues available. So in other um, words, this neighbor who keeps children. hearing these noises coming from the apartment or the house next door there are children in that setup whilst the woman yes. say is if the woman is the one being abused might forgive her partner if for instance i am going on my morning jog and i see the kid has bruises and i can verily mm. link the bruise to the kind of abuse i know to be happening in that house what then would or should i do as that responsible adult in the neighborhood in that circumstance you must report it. You must go to the police or you must go to, um, if there's a Department of Social Welfare near you, or alternatively, you can report it at your nearest children's court. Very well. Final question and or comment 2158 is the time, so we probably won't have space for another contribution. Thanks to those who have participated. My ex-fiancé was very manipulative, locking me inside the house when I want to go out with friends. Or if I'm studying at school, he would come and arrest the securities to let him inside so he can see me. 
He's still in contact with my family, especially my mom, manipulating her to speak on his behalf to get back together. How do I deal with this? Class, classic grounds for domestic violence interdict. Um, it, th that, that sort of relationship definitely falls within the definition of a domestic relationship. So I would urge that person to go to their nearest um, domestic violence court and apply for an interdict. Uh, I really think the, the, those certainly are classic mm. symptoms of, of harassment. Very well. Thank you so much, Sherry. We really do appreciate your time. I think the engagement coming through from the listeners at home is testament to the fact that there is a great need for these sorts of conversations. And you've certainly done your bit in ensuring that there's more accountability and that the law can work for people at home. It's my pleasure. And thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much, Ms. Sherry Breslow.